The words which we are going to consider together this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 6, verses 10 to 13. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that he may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. We are at the moment uh, considering what the apostle calls here the wiles of the devil. We have seen that uh, these can be divided up into the general activity of the devil in the church at large, and then the particular manifestations of the wiles of the devil in the life of the individual Christian. At the moment, we are considering the general manifestations of the wiles of the devil. We have already seen that he can cause trouble in the church by means of heresies, causing people to hold wrong or false ideas with regard to particular matters or aspects of teaching. Heresies. We have also seen that he can create apostasy, which means a more or less departure in general from the Christian faith. We've illustrated that in terms of the Roman Catholic Church. And then last Sunday morning we began to consider the third manifestation of this general manifestation of this activity of the devil, which is called schism. Now all these things are dealt with, as we've seen, in the scriptures. We are simply giving the scriptural teaching with regard to these various ways in which the devil, our adversary, works against God's people with an object and intent, of course, ultimately of bringing God's work into disrepute and into disgrace. It's the same one who came in when God had created everything at the beginning and looked at it and saw that it was good and perfect and came in with his discord and the production of chaos. What he did there in the whole of creation, he has been trying to do in the Christian church from the very beginning, and he is still continuing to do so. And he doesn't care how he does it, he doesn't care how he varies his tactics, he'll contradict himself, he'll do his utmost to prevent people getting into the Christian life at all, but when he fails there, he'll then try to press them to extremes in it, to hurry forward too quickly. He can be all things to all men in a very evil sense. He can even turn himself, as we've seen, into an angel of light. Now, this question of schism, this means a division. It means a division in the church which is unjustifiable. It means a separation of Christian people from one another without an adequate cause. It is a sin which is denounced in the New Testament, the sin of schism, the breaking, the tearing, the rending, as it were, of the body of Christ. Now, I was at pains to remind you that this is a, a very peculiar manifestation of the wiles of the devil. You see, he comes to people who've seen the danger of heresy and the danger of apostasy, and he drives them so violently to the opposite extreme that they divide when they shouldn't divide, 
We should always keep separate from heresy. We should keep as far away as we can from apostasy. Well, he so fills our minds and hearts with that that he causes us to divide when we shouldn't divide. And that is what is meant by the sin of schism. Now, I gave you some examples of uh, the way in which uh, schism is brought to pass. In too much interest in persons and personality. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. I am of Christ. The church at Corinth, you remember, we saw was divided along that line. Carnality. Barnabas wanted to take his nephew Mark with him, John Mark. He had no other reason for it, and so he and Paul separated. Desire for preeminence and importance. Divisions in terms of social position and status. Division in the matter of gifts. The church at Corinth again. Divided, torn by these questions of gifts. And also, obviously, the thing was present in the church at Rome, as we saw in that 14th chapter this morning. Division concerning rites and ceremonies. And we ended off by what is called bigotry. The bigot is a man who's rarely a psychological case. He doesn't realize that, but his trouble is mainly psychological. It's a lack of balance. It's a spirit of fear so often. He's so terrified that he may be a heretic or guilty of apostasy that he becomes hypersensitive, hypercritical, loses his judgment and real balance. And so he becomes a bigot. He manifests obstinacy, an utterly unreasoning and an unreasonable spirit. It is, as I say, mainly a psychological question. Now then, we come to another aspect of this problem of schism. And it is perhaps the most difficult aspect of all. And that is a division concerning doctrine. The New Testament is full of this kind of thing. And the subsequent history of the church shows it perhaps still more clearly. Now, we've got to keep in our minds, as I was indicating last Sunday morning, two positions. On the one hand, there is the danger of an indefiniteness and a vagueness, which eventually leaves you in a position that you not only don't know what you believe yourself, but you don't care what you believe or what anybody else believes. That's the greatest danger today, undoubtedly. All this so-called ecumenical spirit is based upon that finally, that it really doesn't matter very much what you believe in detail that you can't even arrive at a knowledge of what you should believe. That as long as you believe somehow in Christ and call yourself a Christian, you should join with all others who do that as over against communism or materialism or whatever else it may chance to be. There's the one danger. An indifferentism that holds on to no truth at all, but talks vaguely about a certain spirit and doing good. There's the one side. Then this, this is the other side, schism, the danger of uh, unjustifiable division. Now, I say that history uh, demonstrates uh, this uh, second danger very, very clearly. Now, you get it, for instance, immediately after the Protestant Reformation. And here, you see, you see something of the subtlety and of the wiles of the devil. Luther and others were given to see the apostate state of the Roman Catholic Church. And they very rightly separated from her. Now that was a very courageous thing to do. One of the most courageous things that has ever been done in this world. That one man standing alone, saying, I can do no other. 
so help me God. Standing up against 15 centuries of tradition and the weight of this massive organization. Well, he did it, and he did it rightly. He separated. He had to separate. We must always separate from apostasy. But, you see, the moment he did so, and uh, others uh, who followed uh, and who agreed and who saw the rightness of all this, the moment that major division took place, a number of other divisions took place within Protestantism. This so-called physiparous tendency began to manifest itself. And as you read the accounts of the lives of Luther and Calvin and others, you will find that they were greatly troubled by this. The odd sects that arose within the ranks of Protestantism, the Anabaptists, the, the Mennonites and various other groupings, this main division began, as it were, almost a splinter. This physiparous tendency came in. And it was a source of great grief to the great leaders of the Protestant Reformation. Now, there is a perfect illustration of what I'm trying to say. There is a right division, there is a wrong division. And the whole problem is to discover where exactly the limits are. Now, there is something, I say, which is almost inevitable in this kind of tendency. It gives the devil a perfect opportunity. You see, here are people who have divided from apostasy. They've left heresies and apostasy behind. They say we must do so. They see that nothing matters but the truth. They're not going to be governed by tradition. They say it's truth that matters. They put truth first. Then they exercise their private judgment. They say we don't care what all the cardinals may say, what the Pope may say with them. And what all your popes may have said for centuries, it doesn't matter. It's not true. It's not scriptural. They're asserting not only truth, but private judgment. And you see, immediately the devil comes in. He says, you're quite right. Truth alone matters. It's private judgment that counts. So he pressed men, and every man, as it were, became the final authority. And so you had these divisions, these rendings of the body of Christ. You had the arising of this whole state of schism. How subtle the devil is, how he jumps at an opportunity. You see, before the Protestant Reformation, there was nothing that men and women were more afraid of than excommunication. To be driven out of the church, the one and only church. It was a terrible thing. Terrible things were pronounced on the heads of those who thus had been condemned as heretics. John Huss and others had been put to death, as you know. There had been numbers of martyrs before the Protestant Reformation. But it was a terrible thing to be put out of the church. And that had held men back. It had restrained them. But once this big division takes place, well, the fear of excommunication is gone. It's been dealt with. And men have seen that it wasn't a healthy fear. So the, the great restraining influence is gone. The devil comes in immediately and presses people to divide over matters, I say, which do not justify a division. Now, that's how it happened at the time of the Protestant Reformation. And in a sense, we can easily understand it. It was almost inevitable. And yet there is no question at all that he did great harm. Now, this is not confined to the time of the Protestant Reformation. You had exactly the same thing in this country a century later in the time of the Puritans. Here were men, you see, who felt that even the Church of England was not sufficiently reformed, so they went out. 
But then they began to divide amongst themselves. So that at the time of the commonwealth, from uh, 1650 roughly to 1660, you had a great multiplicity of sects and groupings. You had the main Puritan teachers, yes, but you had your fifth monarchy men, you had the sectarians so-called, you had the Quakers uh, coming in. Again, there was this self-same tendency to almost endless division. But I suppose there is no single nation or country that has shown this more clearly than our friends in Scotland, where the divisions in the ranks of the Church of Scotland and amongst Presbyterians have been quite remarkable for their number. It's interesting to read the story, and you will see the various groups that splintered off. There have been... Coming, there's been a coming together again since, but if you look back at the history of the 16th, 17th, the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, you will see this in a very striking manner. I often find people utterly bewildered uh, in their efforts and attempts to understand the divisions of the church of, uh, in, in the church in Scotland. They say, well, now who exactly are these? And how did they come into being? And as you go back through the history, you'll get a perfect illustration of this very thing with which we are dealing. But now let me, I'm so anxious that we should be clear about this danger. Look at it again as it uh, has revealed itself during the last hundred years, or say the last hundred and thirty years. Take people whom we normally refer to as the brethren. You remember that movement which started under the great J.N. Derby, and eventually was concentrated on the town of Plymouth. Brethren. Now their whole idea was that you should have a fellowship of Christian people. They didn't believe in denominations and organizations. They disapproved of all these sects and divisions in the church. They said that's all wrong. So they were going to form a kind of fellowship, brethren together in Christ, and there'd be no divisions and no groupings. Well, I think it is a simple fact of history to say that there is no gathering or no group of people which have shown such a tendency to division as the brethren. You are familiar with some of the divisions and the distinctions that have come into being. Now, it's, it's a very eloquent uh, testimony to this whole danger of schism. Then, uh, let me give you another one. Uh, take friends like the strict Baptists. There's a, a denomination that was started last century uh, in the 1830s. Two great men went out of the Church of England. They formed that and again, you would have thought, well, now here's to be a group that's going to remain. But by now, we know there have been many divisions and distinctions amongst them. And it isn't enough to say you're a strict Baptist. You have to ask him, which of them do you belong to? Is it this or that or that? The moment a major division takes place, you seem to get this tendency. But for me to finish with this purely historical portion, it is, I believe, just a simple fact to say that in the United States of America at this moment, there are at least 261 different religious denominations registered by the state. Now there you see it. And if I were to give you a list of the names, you'd be astonished. The divisions and subdivisions and subdivisions of the subdivisions with a general title in common, but they've disagreed and differed about this or that, and they formed a new denomination. And so it goes on. Now then, I am saying all this in order that we may all see the problem by which we are confronted. 
Clearly there is something wrong with that. It is not only confusing to God's people, it is much more confusing to those who are outside. And when all this is being perpetuated on the foreign mission field, and preachers of the gospel go and perpetuate their own home divisions amongst people who've never heard of these divisions and who don't understand them and were not interested in them, it undoubtedly has been a serious cause of hindrance in the work of the whole foreign mission enterprise. Now then, you see the two things you've got to bear in mind. There are those who say today, of course, what you're saying is perfectly right, and what we say is this. There's only one thing to do. Go and preach Christianity. Don't bother about divisions or definitions. There you are, you see, they say. That's exactly what you've got. Why don't you drop all divisions and distinctions? Let's have a great world church, and we're all one. Ecumenicity is the answer. I am here to assert that it is not the answer. These are two false extremes. Neither is right. And the position we have to discover is the one that avoids the two extremes of indifferentism and schism. Now, let me make this clear. As we deal with this, we're not dealing with the matter of sincerity. All these people are sincere on both sides. I'm not imputing wrong motives to anybody. I believe these people who are talking about ecumenicity are utterly and thoroughly sincere. But so are the people who are guilty of the sin of schism. It's not a matter of sincerity. Neither is it a matter of ability. But one thing seems very clear. That the people who are most given and most subject to the sin of schism are generally those who are most honest, most sincere, and if I may add, most intellectual also. I've reminded you that Scotland has perhaps seen more of this than any other country. I'm thus paying a compliment to the intellectuality of that race of people. It is people who take the Bible seriously and who think and who've got minds. These are the very people whom the devil always attacks. An easygoing man who hasn't much intellect and who doesn't care very much what his position is as a Christian, the devil won't drive him to schism. There's no danger. No, no, it's the man who takes these things seriously and who wants to be right who wants to have things clear in his mind. That's the very man that the devil comes to and uses all his wiles in order to drive him into this position of schism. Well, what have we to say? Well, I've already admitted this is the most difficult aspect of the matter. Obviously, there are no clear-cut rules that we can lay down. If there were, there would never have been any schism. Clearly, we can do nothing more than lay down certain general principles. We can't legislate in this matter. Finally, it'll come to this, that every man will have to be honest with himself and his own conscience. He will have to face the word of God and realize that he's answerable to God, and he will have to obey his individual conscience, and we must respect him for doing so. We have a right to say that we think he's wrong, but we mustn't impute wrong motives to him. He is answerable, as we've seen in the scripture, to God himself. Every man shall give an account of himself. We mustn't judge another man's servant. We are not judges, but it is nevertheless our duty to discover, if we can, certain principles which will help to guide our thought concerning this intricate and difficult matter in order that we may do everything we can to avoid the terrible sin of schism. 
So I'm going to put before you three general considerations. First, cases where separation is clearly justifiable. I'm trying to arrive at certain broad principles. So we'll start with this. We've seen already, for instance, in the case of the Church of Rome and of apostasy, that separation from that is not only justifiable, it is obligatory. It is one's duty to separate from apostasy. There is no question about that. Luther and the Reformers were a hundred percent right. And it is wrong not to follow in their steps. We must have nothing to do with apostasy, with a system that hides the Lord Jesus Christ from the people and robs them of some of the greatest blessings of his great salvation. That's justifiable always. But, wait a minute, that's a fairly clear case about which there will not be probably much discussion. But what about uh, divisions within Protestantism after that? In other words, what is your apologia for nonconformity? Can nonconformity be justified? Should there ever have been a separation from the Church of England? We've got to face that question. Because as the Church of Rome condemns the Church of England as being schismatic, so very often the Church of England is condemned nonconformists as being schismatic. Don't forget that. The Church of England is in a middle position there. What she says is said about her. And it's said, of course, about those who've divided off all down the line. But that's of no value. That's just... Uh, hurling names and epithets of abuse at one another. We've got to try to understand this. On what grounds is further division justifiable? Well, I would suggest these. These were the ones that were given by the great leaders of original nonconformity. One, it is always wrong to put tradition before truth. Now the argument from tradition is a very strong one. And uh, we, of course, must always have very good grounds before we divide from or separate ourselves from a long tradition. It is right to, it, to respect tradition. A man who ignores the past is just a fool. We can learn a great deal from the past. So we must pay great respect to tradition. Yes, but you must never put tradition before truth. For uh, history shows so plainly that false traditions come and arise. The church takes a fall smooth. The next generation doesn't recognize that it's inherited it, and so it assumes it's all right. Everything it says we inherit must be right. That's the traditionalist. Now, that's wrong. We must never be traditionalists. We must respect tradition, but never be slaves to it. And therefore, I say that if ever you find the church putting tradition before truth, you are entitled to separate from it. And there were those who felt that the Church of England was still doing so, that she was incompletely reformed, that she was still continuing with many relics of Roman Catholicism, that her continuation with the liturgy and things like that was an example in point of fact. And some of her views on baptism and so on, she was incompletely reformed. They said she's being tied by tradition and not by truth. Well, I'm laying down the principle that it is wrong to be guided by tradition rather than by truth. Secondly, an imperfect view or a wrong view of the nature of the church is also a justifiable grounds of division. What is the church? Surely the church 
is a gathering of God's people. Surely the church is the gathering of the elect. It is the gathering of the saints. It's got nothing to do with the world. It's got nothing to do with the state. It's got nothing to do with the secular power. It is something spiritual. Therefore, if there is a view of the church which says that the church is just a department of the state, that it's just the spiritual aspect of the life of the state, if indeed the church puts herself into the position that she's under the authority of the state, and that the head of the state and the prime minister can appoint bishops and archbishops and dignitaries, it is then arguable, to say the very least, that this is no longer the New Testament conception of the church. That this alliance with the state, leave alone subjugation to the state and submission to the state, is clearly not compatible with the New Testament picture of the church, which is people gathered out from the state and from the world, separated because they're born again and belong to the kingdom of God. Now then, these men felt that, and they separated on those grounds also. They objected also to the parish idea, namely that everybody living in the parish is a member of the church and is a Christian. They objected equally to the fact that anybody who is baptized does thereby become a Christian. They say this is doing away with the separation. It is confusing the lions. And it's making people assume that they're Christians because they are born in a country which has a state church. They divided on those grounds. A third illustration is this where you can clearly demonstrate and establish that there is an interference with freedom of worship. I mustn't stay with this, but you know, next year is 1962. And 1962 will be the year of the tercentenary of 1662, when 2,000 ministers of the Church of England were ejected from their livings and became nonconformists. Now, it's a little bit important that you should know why that happened. Noble men, these. Well, now, that was one of their reasons they wouldn't take this oath. They wouldn't conform. Why not? Well, they said that uh, they objected to their consciences being dragooned in this way. They said as the result of their understanding of the New Testament, worship should be conducted in a given manner, and a man should have liberty of worship. They said the conscience must be free. But here was a system trying to enforce conformity upon them. And sooner than submit to that, they were driven out of their livings. They were left virtually as paupers with their wives and their children. They had to leave their vicarages, their rectories, and out they went, 2,000 of them. They did it in, in terms and in the name of freedom of conscience, freedom of worship, a refusal to be dictated to by the state as to how they should worship God. And lastly, I would say this, that it is always right to separate from any return to the Roman Catholic position. And you know, you can return to 99.9% .9 of the Roman Catholic position without being a Roman Catholic. There are sections of the church today who have gone back to Rome in every single item except one. They don't believe in papal infallibility. I say that any returning to the practices of Rome, her sacramental teaching and so on, is something which more than justifies division. Well, there are some illustrations, and that last one, of course, was a very powerful factor in the 17th century. These great leaders, they knew that Charles I was really a Roman Catholic, though he pretended he wasn't. They knew that Charles II was likewise more than flirting with it. 
they saw a terrible danger that the Church of England might be taken back to Rome. And it was a potent factor in their determination to stand at all costs. And surely the call comes to us today with equal power. Well, there's my first heading. Let me come to a second. There we were dealing with when separation is justifiable, too, when separation is questionable. Now, notice I'm saying questionable. I'm putting it as quietly as I can. I'm not saying that it's wrong. I'm saying it's at least questionable. What do I mean? I mean something like this. To divide over matters that are not essential to salvation is, I am suggesting, at least very questionable. Here you've got a body of men and women who agree fundamentally as to the way of salvation. They're agreed that they're hopeless, helpless sinners. They're agreed that if they're left like that, they can never be saved. Nothing but the grace of God can save them. They're all agreed. They agree that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. They agree about his virgin birth, his miracles. They agree that he took our sins in his own body on the tree and died to bear their punishment. They agree that he rose literally in the body from the grave, that he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, and that he sent the Holy Spirit to his person upon the church on the day of Pentecost. They agree about all that. I suggest that if such men separate and divide, their action, to put it at its very lowest, is very questionable. Now you notice what I'm saying. There are many today who call themselves Christians who would not agree with what I've been saying. They don't subscribe to those doctrines. I'm not talking about them. They're either heretics or apostates. I'm talking about people who are absolutely agreed about these things. And I am asking, is it right that such people should divide and separate from one another? Is it right for people to separate and divide concerning certain aspects of this about which they're agreed in general? Is it right that they should separate from one another who simply disagree as to how this works in practice, in their intellectual apprehension of how it actually works? Is it right to separate on that? But let me give you a second illustration. I am suggesting that it's very questionable whether you should divide over matters concerning which one simply cannot arrive at certainty. Where it is a pure matter of interpretation, I am suggesting that it is wrong to divide where you cannot arrive at absolute certainty. What do I mean by that? Well, let me tell you. I would myself, without any hesitation, say that about the question of baptism. You cannot arrive at absolute finality and certainty on the question of baptism. Therefore, though we may disagree amongst one another, I would say you should not divide or separate from one another on that. It's not essential to salvation. Therefore, are you justified in dividing of it? I would say exactly the same about the interpretation of prophecy. You can be a premillennialist, a postmillennialist, or an amillennialist. Not a single one of these can be proved absolutely. Neither many other matters of prophecy. The giving back of the land to Israel. That Christ is going to set up his kingdom in Jerusalem. It may be true, but you can't prove it. It may not be true. There are many matters of prophecy about which you cannot arrive at an absolute... You say, but I believe the Bible. The reply to that is, so do I. But I don't agree with you. It's a matter of interpretation. And what I am suggesting is that when you're dealing with matters of pure interpretation, 
where you cannot arrive at an absolute decision, it is wrong to divide. There are many other matters. Look what was happening in Corinth. In Rome, we saw it in that 14th chapter. Which day should you observe? Should you observe the Saturday? Should you observe the Sunday? Or should it be some other day? They were dividing over that. Paul condemns them over these matter of meats. Should you eat meat or should you only eat herbs? And so on and so forth. The apostle's teaching is that it is wrong to divide over these matters. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. And I say that the kingdom of God is not a Saturday Sabbath or a Sunday Sabbath. It is righteousness or peace or joy in the Holy Ghost. Do what you like in practice, but don't divide over it, I say. And my third illustration under this heading is this one. That it is wrong to divide surely, or at least questionable. Over the outworking or the practical application of the biblical teaching. What do I mean by this? Well, I'm thinking, for instance, of a matter like church government. You cannot prove which of them is right. I don't happen to believe in the Episcopalian idea, but I can't prove it. You can't prove that Episcopacy is right, or Presbyterianism is right, or Independence is right. I have my views, but I'm saying it's wrong to divide over this. You can't prove it. And in any case, this does not affect these vital central matters of salvation. And therefore I say that we must be very careful when we divide even over matters like church government. Still less if it's a question of whether you should only sing psalms and whether hymns are justifiable. We've already considered that in chapter 5. And then, you know, there have been times when people have divided over this. There were two sections of the church in Scotland in the 18th century called the burger and the anti-burger sections. What was that due to? Whether you should take an oath to the state, an oath of allegiance and so on. The burger oath. They divided the church over that. They were agreed about everything else. They divided on that. I am suggesting to you that this is not a reasonable and a justifiable cause of division. Surely in all these matters, we must recognize the legitimacy of a difference of opinion. We must agree to disagree. But I am asking the question, is it right to separate and to divide the church on any of those matters? So I come to my last heading, which is this. There are certain general considerations which we should always keep in the forefront of our minds as we are considering this subject. Here is the first, and the most important by far. What is my real and my chiefest concern? Is it to know God and to know the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it their glory through the Holy Spirit? Is it my chiefest concern to keep ever before me the good of souls? Am I concerned about the lost that are hurtling to an eternal misery and damnation? Are these my controlling principles? Or am I mainly concerned to prove that I'm right? Am I intolerant of any other opinion? It's a terrible danger, isn't it? Am I a pure intellectualist that wants my system absolutely perfect and won't allow any deviation at any point? Am I so concerned about this that I won't listen? I'll go out, I must divide. Or can I say that my chiefest concern is that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering 
that I might be made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection from the dead? Am I mainly concerned about the glory of God and of his Son and of the Holy Ghost and the salvation of men and women and the upbuilding of the saints? Is that my controlling passion? Am I animated by love to God and to my fellow men above everything else? You know, if we keep that in the center, I don't think we'll ever go very far astray. It's when men have forgotten that and have been peculiar like the Pharisees about mint and rue and anise and coming and have forgotten the weightier matters of the law and the love of God. It's then they've tended to divide. Oh, the man who keeps himself in the presence of God and before his face, he's humbled, he's made lowly, he's not so sure of himself and of his opinions, he's hesitant about division. He's a careful man always because his supreme desire is the glory of God and of his dear son. Very well put that first. Secondly, always try to consider the situation as a whole. In other words, this point about which you are arguing and which you feel should urge you to separate, don't stop at that only. Put it into its context. Consider the whole. This is a most vital principle. Let me elaborate that by saying this. Never be content only with considering the action Consider the consequences of the action, the possible consequences of the action. It's one thing to say, now if I do this, I'll be absolutely right, my conscience will be clear, I'll be doing what I believe. Yes, but my dear friend, consider the effects and the results and the repercussions of that over other people, your weaker brother and a thousand and one other persons. You must never act in isolation. Didn't you notice Romans 14? No man liveth unto himself, no man dieth unto himself. You must not set yourself up as an isolated unit and be only concerned that you are right. No, no. Everybody else is involved with you. The whole church consider the consequences of your action. If only that had been remembered, many things would have been avoided in the history of the church. Then let me add to that the time element. Yes, says the book of Ecclesiastes, there is a time to sow and there is a time to reap and is all important in this matter. So much damage has been caused in the church, schism has often arisen because men would do it at once. Now there's a classical instance of this. The independence congregationists were once upon a time known as Brownists. And why were they known as Brownists? Well, because the first real leader amongst them was a man called Robert Brown who lived in the second half of the 16th century. Now, the case of Robert Brown is a very instructive one, a most important one. No man who's interested in these matters of church government and so on should ever live another second without reading the story of Robert Brown, because this is his story. He was in the Church of England, but he was a Puritan, and rightly so. But then, you see, this is the book he wrote. Reformation without tarrying for any. You see, there were many Puritans in the Church of England who said, well, the Church of England is incompletely reformed and we must set about to reform her. We must get rid of these things that are wrong. We must make of her a pure church. They were all agreed about that. But Robert Brown said, no, that's not good enough. I say, said Robert Brown, that we've got to do it now. Reformation without tarrying for any. He said, I don't care, I'll do it alone. I'll step out myself. You people can tarry if you like. You, say, you can stay on and think that you can reform the Church of England and do this thing gradually. No, no, says Robert Brown, it's got to be done at once. The thing's wrong. Reformation without tarrying for any. And he did it. And he went out. And he went to the church that he formed in Norwich and afterwards crossed to Holland. But this is the interesting thing. 
after a very few years, Robert Brown went back into the Church of England and he lived to a ripe old age in the Church of England. In other words, he learned this vital lesson that there is a time for these things, that he would have been a wiser man if he had tarried a little. No, no, not reformation without tarrying for any. Make sure, my friend, that it's God's time. There is a timing in these matters. History proves this very eloquently. The fact that it's right doesn't mean it's right now. Wait a bit. Wait until you produce the position, which is my next point. Consider the preparation and the readiness of the people. You mustn't act alone. You may see a thing very clearly. But, says Paul to those Romans, and he says the same to the Corinthians, remember that there are some people who are not quite as gifted as you are. Don't rush them. Take time. Be patient as God's been patient with you. Educate them. Train them. Show them the dangers. Don't rush ahead at once the moment you see a thing. Prepare the people so that when you act, you'll have people acting with you. And you'll have a body of opinion and what you do will be of some value. There are so many men who've divided. And this has been their story. They've been able men and great men. They've divided at the wrong point. They've just gone off into a little cul-de-sac. Nobody's ever heard of them. And they've never been of any value to anybody at all. It was because they didn't realize the importance of the time element and, and of preparation. Let me sum it all up by putting it like this. Balance all the factors. Oh, but you say that's worldly wisdom. No, it isn't. It is the very thing that the New Testament is constantly exhorting us to. We've got to consider all these factors. In other words, you see, you've got to consider a thing like this. That though your principle may be very clear to you, it may lessen your own efficiency and efficacy. It may do harm to the total witness of the church which is preaching the real truth. It may confuse the people who are outside. You've got to consider these matters. You've got to be balanced. You've got to take it as a whole. And then, having looked all round it and having prayed and waited and consulted, you then, if you're fully satisfied everywhere, proceed to action. I end it then by summing up with this well-known phrase. In matters essential, unity. In matters indifferent, liberty. In all things, charity. Does someone ask me the question, what's the relevance of all this to the position today? Well, if it's of any value and of any help to you, I'll tell you the position which I hold myself. I recognize only one division. It is the division between evangelical and non-evangelical. If a man subscribes to those tenets of the faith which I've already enunciated, I'm with him. I'm his brother. If he doesn't, I am not with him. I don't care whether he's been brought up in the same section of the church as I was. I don't care what he calls himself. I don't care what label is on him. There is only one division. If a man tells me he thinks he can put himself right with God, I have no fellowship with him. If he denies the deity of Christ, I have no fellowship with him. If he denies the substitutionary atonement, I have no fellowship with him. If he denies the literal physical resurrection, I have no fellowship with him. For I'd have no gospel to preach if I didn't believe that. These are not matters of indifference. These are absolute essentials. If a man is agreed about this one and only way of salvation in Jesus Christ and him crucified, I'm with him. And I am prepared to stretch to the uttermost limit before I separate from him. But if he is not agreed about these things, then I say there's no question at all. 
we have nothing in common. He may be using the word Christian and I'm using the word Christian, but he puts an entirely different content into it. And I have no choice. Indeed, for my sins, I find myself in strange agreement with Oliver Cromwell on this matter. Oliver Cromwell, when he was in power, drew up a system. Its main provision was for an establishment embracing all Orthodox Protestants. Anglicans and Roman Catholics were excluded, the former mainly for politic on political grounds. The exact form of service and discipline was left to the initiative of the local congregation and minister. The chief architect of the system was Dr. John Owen, and thus it might seem to favor the independents. However, Presbyterians, Baptists, and others who fell within the prescribed limits, were at liberty to order the worship and government of their congregation in accordance with their convictions. Only at one vital point did the government intervene. Committees were set up to try ministers as to their fitness for the office and to eject those who were unsuitable. I take leave to say that that is exactly how I understand this very matter. I don't care whether a man is a Presbyterian or a Baptist or an Independent or whatever else he may call himself, as long as he's agreed about these. In an age such as this, with godlessness rampant, the evil one abroad, the church weak and powerless and ineffective, so largely apostate and guilty of vile heresy, to me the supreme tragedy is that evangelical people are divided, and divided solely on grounds of tradition, simply because they happen to have been brought up in a certain section of the church. That's their only reason. On all these matters we are one, and yet we are divided up, we are diluted in these various bodies, and we are not counting as we should count. Oh, that we may be given the wisdom that was given to the great Oliver Cromwell, and the equally great Dr. John Owen, the Puritan divine. Oh, that we might see that the one great need and essential is that we make it plain and clear that we stand on revelation alone and that we preach the biblical doctrine of sin and condemnation and hell and the only way of salvation in the Son of God by his blood by his death and glorious resurrection and the power of the Holy Ghost upon it all. To preach it, to apply it, to enable us to live by it. Well, there it seems to me are some of the governing and controlling principles that we should keep in our minds if we are truly anxious to avoid the terrible sin of schism. Amen.